This is a podcast from the Queen City Podcast Network. And welcome to another episode of Queen City Nerves News Hounds Podcast. I am Ryan Pitkin, editor in chief and host here. We don't have Justin with us, but we do have a great guest. We have Terry White, who this summer was named the new CEO and president of the Charlotte Museum of History. So I'm really excited about this conversation. It's just a history buff myself. So Terry, how are you doing today? I am excellent. How are you? I'm doing well. I mean, like we were just talking about off the mic, it's a little dreary, dreary weather this week, but it's been not too cold, cold. Absolutely. I'm, I'm happy about that, mm-hmm. you know. Absolutely. So... You have quite a history. I, I, I don't know. I don't really know where to start here, and I don't mean that as a pun, as a history museum uh, CEO and president. But you've had a lot of great positions, um, mm-hmm. and I just sort of want to let you sort of run down the list of of what led you here to Charlotte in terms of professionally, where you've worked in the past, because it's an impressive list and a really interesting one. Well, thank you. It has definitely not been a straight line journey to get to this point. Um, my museum career started in D.C. at the Smithsonian. I went to, I'm originally from Pittsburgh, went to D.C. for college. And in the midst of finding my career as a young person, ended up, I didn't understand that at the time. I just kind of took it for granted, but ended up at the World's Museum. And I was specifically at the National Air and Space Museum. And I worked in visitor services and a lot of special events there. And I also did some work in the Office of Sponsored Projects, Mm -hmm. which manages the grant application processes for all of the museums and research centers. So that was fun. I had some family things come up, and I moved back home to Pittsburgh to take care of my grandmother and worked at the Heinz History Center, which is the largest history museum in Pennsylvania. And I was there for four years Uh, working primarily in fundraising, but when you're at a place that long, you get involved with everything. And then had a leadership opportunity role at the Carnegie Science Center, one of the four Carnegie museums, Mm -hmm. very popular museum system. And I was the assistant director of development there. And so throughout this journey, I was learning my museum chops, getting to understand what it meant to be a museum professional, not just as a general person, but as a woman, as a black woman, as a person under the age of 70. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And (laughs) what does that mean for my future? And I got to the point where I kept hitting a glass ceiling. I wasn't expanding my skills the way I wanted to. And to make a long story short, I'm a chatter. Sorry. We're cool with chatting. It's a podcast. (laughs) Um, Better than the short answer people. Oh, no, no, no. I'm the one you need to say. All right, Terry, let's wrap this up. Um, To make a long story short, I decided, well, I have this other random interest in supply chain and merchandising. Totally random. Mm -hmm. I know. But I went, got an MBA, and ended up in Charlotte because I accepted a corporate position with Lowe's working in a product management in the tech division Mm -hmm. and worked in a few corporations here in supply chain tech, essentially. And while I was good at the job, I liked the job. I had great coworkers. They were some of my earliest Charlotte friends. I didn't love the work I did. The museums were calling you you back. They were calling me back. Mm -hmm. But then I also was like, "Mm." 
I like corporate pay. So right. how do I get back into an industry that just really excites me, but also doesn't require a vow of poverty? Mm-hmm. And so as this is the honest to goodness truth. Around Cinco de Mayo, I'm on the phone with my best friend, and I said, you know, if a job opens up, I'm going to apply and take it and just see what happens. Mm-hmm. And then Memorial Day weekend, I was looking for something to do because I wasn't going to any celebrations. So mm-hmm. uh, most of my time in Charlotte has been during the pandemic. So I'm still learning the museums and landmarks. Right. Looked on Charlotte Museum of History's website. And as a joke, I said, oh, let's see what visitor service position is open. And it said the president is, yeah, <laughs> the president and CEO. Mm-hmm. So I kept refreshing the browser like, there's no way this is real. Mm-hmm. This, this is the universe pranking me. But it was real. The deadline to apply was midnight, and it was already oh, wow. like 930 at night. Mm-hmm. So I immediately shot off emails to my mentors and said, hey, I'm putting you down as a reference, FYI. Mm-hmm. And I got my application in, and here right. I am today. Wow, that's super um... – What's the word I'm looking for? It's not sanctimonious, but that's very uh, just a fateful <laughs> discovery for you to, to see that the day of the deadline. Um, Absolutely. How familiar had you been with uh, Charlotte Museum of History before then, if at all? I actually used to live 10 minutes away okay. from it. And so I recognized the big white signs that said, Charlotte Museum right. of History, mm-hmm. this way. But I hadn't been, mm-hmm. one, pandemic, but right. two, I was you know, drawn to other locations for whatever reason. And that was going to be my experience. And so I didn't even actually get to go to the museum because I ended up just getting my resume updated and and all that stuff. But it was fun. Nice. It was fun. Um, So just in terms of you're also a student right now, a doctoral student at UNC Charlotte. I am because I am a glutton for punishment. Right. When did you start that? This was before or after you took the position? So I was accepted before I even saw this position. Mm-hmm. I was accepted last fall. Mm-hmm. So I was still in corporate America. And, you know, no offense to my corporate friends, when you shut the laptop for the day and you finish up your project, your evening is yours. Whereas in the nonprofit museum world, it is your life. Journalism, so, journalism I can relate to that. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So I accepted the 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 admittance into the Doctor of Business Administration program. And then I did exactly what they tell us not to do, and that's start a new job. <laughs> and <laughs> it has been an interesting balance of time, mm-hmm. for sure, between the two. Well, I think your area of study at UNC Charlotte is very interesting in terms of um, trans- translating to your museum work, mm-hmm. and you are just studying the impacts of a diversity and inclusion in the workplace, the economic impacts. Yes. Um, and I think that's a really an interesting topic just to sort of look at right now because we have gone through a, I would hope not a phase, but it's starting to appear that way in terms of like, remember 2020 and there was all these social justice protests going on and a lot of white-led corporations making promises and this and that about diversity and inclusion and re inventing the way they look at such things. And I'm just curious as to someone who's really been uh, even relatively new in this in studying this, but I'm sure it's come up in your further studies. You have a master's and you've been, you've been in this field for a while. Um, but what sort of things have really stuck with you in terms of this, this area of research in terms of 
where we stand two years after these protests. And then we'll get into a little bit of how it plays differently in the museum culture. But just in terms of what you're studying at school right now, like coming two years off of those sort of a shift in focus, or at least one that was promised, what Coming you sort with of the see. the big questions. Right, yeah, this is a, this is a, a broad <laughs> okay. question. Because, you, you know, it's very specific that you talk about economic impact. And you mm-hmm. spoke about that, I believe, in Queen City Metro as to why that was Absolutely. important to you. Because people can talk all, the, all they want. Mm-hmm. So why was it important for you to measure economic impact and research that? So I'm specifically looking at, um, in my research, how it impacts the diverse people. Mm -hmm. Um, Once you get into a space, it's one thing to say, oh, we're going to recruit, we're going to hire, all that. But how are we retaining people? How long are they staying once they get in the door? Are they being paid equitable and fair wages compared to their peers? And how are their lives changing uh, financially now that they have these opportunities? And in some industries, you know, just as a lay person, you can see that that happens. But in others, you see where people are saying, well, yeah, I work in this field, but I know I don't make the top of the salary that I could, or I'm still having to take care of five branches of my family tree. So yes, on paper, I make more money, but equitably, I'm still not moving ahead. And I thought the the reason I got interested in that sort of deals with another thing that came out during the pandemic was the Uncle Nearest story with uh, Jack Daniels and how he learned from this uh, black man on how to make his product because I have a family history in that industry. Mm. And pandemic, you have nothing but time to read. So I'm reading all these books. And even here in North Carolina, there were dozens of stories of people of color, women, uh, people who were disenfranchised for their time period who contributed to this industry but because of laws and racism, we're not allowed to prosper from it. So how does that translate today? Well, today, hopefully, mm-hmm, <laughs> I'm right. not going to get you know run out of town with a mob of people with pitchforks, but I can be denied an interview. I can, yeah, we'll let you come in, but we won't promote you for five years. Right. Or, yeah, we'll hire you, but we'll bring you in at the lowest salary possible so that it takes you 10 years to make what someone with less education or experience is earning. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to get formal education and be in a position to research this officially instead of just lay observations and hearing what people say. That's one level of truth, but I wanted to have data and facts. Right. Because you can feel however you want. Mm-hmm. If you have proof to back up what you're feeling, then that's a different discussion. And it opens up opportunities to to come up with solutions. It's not enough to just point fingers and say, you're doing wrong. Okay, this is wrong. Here's the data to back it up. How do we action make action upon this information? How do we change this so that it actually improves for everybody? And, you know, the research is out there that diverse teams, for the most part, improve the bottom line of corporations, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. But corporations, right. <laughs> at least no. outside of the law, are not people. Mm-hmm. So what does this mean for our communities and our neighborhoods and our cities and, and the ripple-down effect of what people earn versus what they're able to contribute to society? Right. And just in terms of now taking this position, mm-hmm. you've, you've got the job. Um, 
how does sort of some of this come into you? Spoken about the new strategic plan for mm-hmm. the uh, uh, Charlotte Museum of History running through to twenty twenty seven, and how you want to approach that. How do your studies and and not even just your studies, but your style of work and what you what your priorities are? How does that play into this new strategic plan? Oh man, it absolutely mm-hmm. <laughs> it definitely aligns. Um, the first thing I'll say is. One misconception that people have is that nonprofit means no profit. Right. And that we're not supposed to make money. Absolutely not. We should earn money and should make profits. But how we use those profits are important. So if we earn a bunch of money through ticket sales or revenue from merchandise or, you know, whatever, Mm. we're not paying out dividends to our board. We're buying uh, equipment so that our elevators are safer or... And upgrading our bathrooms, we recently had an issue where our ADA compliance is a little out of date. So now we need to upgrade. That's where our profits go. So I want to point that out. But having worked in the museum space for a very long time in multiple cities of museums of various sizes and often being the only or one of few black person in my institution, I can absolutely see where the culture has changed. Whereas 10 years ago, if you said, well, let's have an exhibit about this super black topic, Mm -hmm. unless you were an African-American history museum, more than likely you would get a look of, well, do people really want to see that? Mm -hmm. We don't want to alienate our supporters. We, you know, let's just do another civil war exhibit. Right. You know, no, no offense to the civil war, but there's only so much Mm -hmm. (laughs) you can do And you're going to both sides it. Right. Like, there's not too many both sides here. It's, it, right. the war ended mm-hmm. and it had a definite <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> outcome. But, um, but today you have institutions, even muse, uh, organizations that aren't traditional history museums, looking at who are we presenting in our programming and our concerts or our exhibitions or even in our staff. How can we have a program about, say, Hispanic Heritage Month, and there's not one Hispanic, Latina, Latino, Latinx, Mm -hmm. nobody in the entire staff is of this heritage. How can you authentically present that? And so I I see within the museum culture specifically that changing culturally. Once you get more people in the door, the dollars come. Mm -hmm. When people see themselves, when people feel represented, they're willing to buy that ticket for admission. They're willing to become a member. Those who have more means are willing to donate because they see that even if you aren't perfect at it, that you're taking accountability and ownership and you're trying. Mm-hmm. So Right. And I do think I've talked a lot about this. I've been a big supporter of museum history since, uh, I don't know, since I've started my career. And Thank you. I've seen the change uh, happen. And I talked a lot about this with Adria Folt, who's your, uh, Folt, who was your, uh, predecessor and she I saw the change come with her now you are the first black woman uh, to serve in this position and that brings also the representation that you just spoke about and brings all sorts of new opportunities and then before that I saw her sort of make a change I I have this anecdote that I've told I think probably even before on this podcast I'm not sure where I was before Adria took over I was there at the Museum of History doing a tour of the Hezekiah Alexander house Mm -hmm. um and we were in the detached kitchen outside and right. speaking about 
the work that folks did in there, and someone had raised their question and said, so you mean to tell me it was a person's job to wake up in the morning before the sun rose, rise and start cooking food in here, and they don't leave until the sun goes down, and that's their whole day, and that's their whole job? The person was like, yes. And I was like, well, hold on a second. Let's, in, <laughs> let's, let's talk about what you mean by job, because that, that, that job's... That word is doing a lot of work right there. Because Absolutely. there were slaves on this land, and you haven't mentioned them on this tour once. And she was like, yeah, well, we're not sure how many, but there, there were enslaved people on this land. Um, and that was sort of my takeaway from that tour, other than the fact that my little man that I mentor asked me if we churned butter when I was a little kid every morning. <laughs> and I said, I'm, I think I was 20-something at the time. Like, how old do you think I am? But... Um, and I saw Adria's uh, efforts to sort of, you know, there are, even before she came, you know, the Saloon School fundraising drive came before her, and, and I've slowly seen those those steps being taken. So that's, I don't really have a question. I'm just, I'm just sort of interested in how you plan on um, sort of continuing on in that same drive as the first black woman to take that position. Absolutely. So I... I will give credit to Adria and the museum prior to my arrival that those steps had been started. And now when you go on our tours, we have names of the people. We have a count. And uh, the pandemic kind of threw off the research, but we will be picking back up the research into what happened to them beyond 1774. Right? Do they have descendants alive today? And we were able to fully flesh that out for one individual but that is an ongoing project. Um, myself, personally, I, I understand the importance of telling that story and telling a complete story because also there were native, native peoples here yeah. before the Alexanders decided, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to put my house right here. Right. So what was their story? And I think that the work we've done with telling indigenous stories and, and beginning the honest history of early black history as it can relates to colonial Carolina, colonial right. Carolina. <laughs> That's a tongue twister. Right. I think that work has has been really great. Where I'm hoping to further it is to move away from trauma porn mm. and really tell authentic, engaging stories that say this wasn't just all tragedy. It wasn't all depressing. Oh my God, I don't want to go to the museum because I'm just going to be reminded of mm. all these bad things that happened. All peoples in Charlotte have contributed to the city that we are today. And because we're not the Charlotte Museum of Colonial History, mm-hmm. we are general history, we have an obligation to tell that story. So one exhibit that we are working on is about, I'm trying to think how much I can say. Right. Break the news. <laughs> Breaking news. news. So uh, there is a woman... Uh, named Mary Caldwell Dawson, who is from Madison, North Carolina. So not specifically Charlotte, but Piedmont region. And she would go on to found the National Negro Opera Company, the first and only commercially successful black opera company in the country. And she never got to tour here in the South. Um, The company was founded in 1941 and folded in the early 60s. So she never got to bring the, the company to the South She never returned to live in the South. But now we have the opportunity to tell that story that someone from small town North Carolina would go on to influence music to a degree that it's hard to imagine. She was appointed by President Kennedy to a national committee for arts 
uh, education and funding before the NEA was a thing. Right. So she was highly influential. Uh, Bobby McFerrin, his father was a performer with the opera company. So mm-hmm. he grew up directly influenced by the training his dad received here. And it's a story that isn't widely shared, but has a strong connection to this region. And so we're working on that with a couple partnerships. So that's super breaking news. Right. That's but those awesome. are the sort of stories that we want to share. Mm-hmm. What I'll say as far as representation, <laughs> it is very different than working in corporate from your laptop in the house, let me right. tell you. And I have the funniest story. Well, funny now, but not funny at the time. I was <laughs> in Walmart looking a complete mess. Okay, because I was just hurrying in to get some dog food because I had forgotten and my dogs needed to eat. So and I these went. These are the in times then. when you're guaranteed to run into somebody. Well, lesson learned. <laughs> <laughs> lesson learned. So I'm just running in, and this lady is, I mean, staring me down. Mm-hmm. And I'm from the inner city, my friend. And so if somebody's staring you down that hard, you need to check your surroundings right. <laughs> and make sure you're not about to be in danger. So I'm like, what is this? Do I do I know her? Like, what is? So she finally approaches me and says, is your name Terry? So I'm nervous. Like, oh, my gosh, she knows my name. Mm-hmm. I said, yes. Like, <laughs> making sure I have my exits in case something crazy happens. Because, you know, I don't want to be on World Star. Right. <laughs> um, and she says, I saw you on the news your first day at work. And I brought my grandkids in the room so that they could see you and show them oh, wow. that they could be museum presidents so one i feel like a jerk because right. i'm up here like suspicious right because i mean but who has it's people only... just stare at yeah them right for multiple aisles in walmart <laughs> but then it just was like oh you mean people are watching me that closely and it it really brought home this isn't just me just doing a job because i love it which i do um but i really am representing a lot of different ideals for a lot of different people. And so I take that very seriously now that I recognize how serious this is for others. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I'm just me. Right. I don't I don't know how celebrities do it because right. that was a little <laughs> awkward. But mm-hmm. it was it, it was one of those heart-touching moments. So it's funny now. Yeah, but amazing. at the moment, I was like... Mm. You know, yeah, right. But that's a really great <laughs> moment just to know that, you know, she's taking her kids into the uh, into the room just to see... Because, you know, you have to see it to be it. Um, And just in terms of, you know, there's been a, out of the museum institutions here in Charlotte, Mm -hmm. um, you have sort of the ones along the Levine Avenue, Mm -hmm. Gantt, uh, Beckler, Mint Museum, all there together that, uh, especially as of recently, you know, launching a Wednesday Night Live series and doing a lot of engagement sort of things. and how do you sort of see an opportunity, if any, or what opportunities do you see to sort of bring Charlotte Museum of History that started to get to that point of being, I don't want to use the word hip, I'm trying to think of a, bit, a better word for that, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think with like the, the, the old signs exhibit that was there and stuff like that, um, there's been, I've seen a little bit of a younger crowd coming in and, and going to galas and stuff. But where do you see an opportunity to bring not only a more diverse crowd, but a younger crowd and sort of be, make Charlotte Museum a history uh, center for stuff like that in terms of, you know, guys are location-wise a little mm-hmm. placed outside of the, of the center. Mm-hmm. But do, is that a goal of yours to sort of make it more of a social place where people come to see what y'all are up to? Um, 
So yes, but not because of the other museums here. Right, right. You know, they are doing. I don't great even work. mean it to make. Oh yeah, competitive, no, no. But I just mean in general. I mean, they have the. I think they we're have competitive the location. with ourselves. Right. So I think what they're doing is awesome. Mm-hmm. And although we don't have the benefit of that walk-in traffic that the others may have because they're closer to each other. Uh, the first thing I tell people, because a lot of people have never been, is, well, one, we have free parking. Right. And that is half the battle for mm-hmm. most people. But even outside of uh, kitschy things like that, uh, I think that my goal is I truly believe in my heart of hearts that in a few years the Charlotte Museum of History is not only going to be at the same level as our uh, local peers, but I want us to be a nationally class history museum. Mm-hmm. And so... I can't worry about what everyone else is doing. I'm only focused on us. Mm-hmm. As far as uh, diversity, uh, we are very intentionally reaching out to the community to say, hey, we realize we're not showing your stories and you aren't represented. How can we do so authentically with your help? So two communities that have immediately stepped up mm-hmm. almost to a point of, whoa, we're not ready. Right? We don't have help. Yeah. <laughs> is, is the Hispanic Latinx community and the Asian Asian American community, the AAPI community. We have probably about 20 programs between this month, I was going to say December, but it is December, Mm -hmm. uh, between this month and next year Mm -hmm. planned already with the Hispanic Latin American community, with multiple organizations where we are reaching out to all of the uh, different specific communities, the Colombian community especially has come forward. And I made sure that I, I let them know. I don't want this to just be box checking where, mm-hmm. oh, we put Ola on, on the front door mm-hmm. and now you feel included. I really want the the local stories, be it collecting oral histories, be it uh, educational programs, programs for children. I really want this to be a true part of the fabric of our institution. With the AAPI community, I just had a call last week with the president of the Asian American Chamber of Commerce, and he gave me advice on how to reach out to the different segments of that community. And we are working on two film deals, not deals, <laughs> we're not Hollywood, right, right. Uh, screenings. Oh, okay. To... I was wondering, I was like, wow, you're no, breaking no. more news right here. <laughs> no, no. I mean, maybe one day, hopefully, but... Mm-hmm. No, you're gonna but have Mary screening. Beth over there in PR scrambling like she's announcing oh. too much. <laughs> oh yeah, she's gonna be like Terry. What are you doing? <laughs> but um, but uh, there are two films out right now. There's uh, Far East, Deep South, mm-hmm. and Blurring the Color Lines that talk about the Asian and the Asian immigrant experience in the American Southeast. Mm. And so while they don't speak about Charlotte specifically, showing those films, but then having the local. Uh, community leaders from that community say here's how it impacted us here and here are the things that happened to us specifically in this area is uh one thing that we're working on Uh, in addition to we also are launching a concert series Uh, we're calling them jewel jams leading Mm -hmm. up to our charlotte gym fundraiser and there is she is super dope Mm -hmm. um full disclosure she she and i met in my first master's program Mm -hmm. but she is a hindi classical violinist who incorporates pop and hip-hop into her concerts with sort of a lecture style that explains the differences between Hindi classical music and Western classical music. Oh, wow. And how the music can still cross cultural lines, even if it's not something that you would inherently think would. 
And so it's like a whole educational experience mm-hmm. with them. And I'm, I'm. Is that scheduled for a date yet? It is not scheduled. Okay. If someone would like to sponsor, okay, <laughs> we can get her here Reach even out. sooner. But um, that's that's the main thing is uh, finding the the sponsorship and funds to do this because we we can get the ideas coming. My mm-hmm. team, I think they're really starting to blossom now that they're you know I've been there for a while. I'm right. not leaving. Trust me, you're mm-hmm. stuck with me. Uh, that we we have the ideas for days. It's understanding we can't do everything at once because we are a small team, but we are so excited. And so to bring it back to your question, Mm -hmm. I'm worried about putting on high-quality, inclusive exhibits and programs that are unique and speak to people who aren't currently being represented in institutions locally or regionally to the extent of others. Right. And... I think that is where your location does play into your strengths. Yeah, because, I mean, East Charlotte, it's mm-hmm. a, a very different feel than Uptown. Mm-hmm. So, And they're about to go through, and y'all, I guess, East Charlotte as a whole is about to go through major changes in terms of, you know, it's already coming along with corridors of opportunity, being on Albemarle mm-hmm. and Central, and then Eastland is going to go through its whole huge redevelopment. So how important is it to you to sort of be, I, I heard you refer to wanting to be a keystone was the word you used to be Charlotte in a, a previous article. And just how important is it to you to sort of be that uh, uh, staple and supporter of the folks who already are there when we might be on the verge of seeing displacement or other sorts of, I mean, gentrification is a almost a sure thing. And just being sure Very to true. be a part of that community as it's going through changes. Right. So one thing I will say is that as a museum, we're not necessarily a social services organization. Sure. Yeah. Um, personally, I'm like, oh, my God, please don't gentrify. Right. <laughs> we just started. <laughs> um, but where we can fit in is having these communities be engaged in an active part of the work that we're doing. Uh, one of the things that we're working with Fiestas Patrias for a lot of the Hispanic community and Latin American community and making sure that people are saying, no, no, before you come with your chain, PF Changs and mm-hmm. Buffalo Wild Wings, we had our restaurants here and here's what our food means to us and here's how we got here. So I think prominently sharing those stories and reminding people this isn't just wasteland that you're you've discovered and now you're going to put something shiny and new here. There have been people here living and and contributing to our city and county for generations. So I think actively promoting those stories will be important. Secondly, because, you know, knock on wood, our physical building is not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, We can be the physical space for people to galvanize and activate themselves for whatever they feel is necessary to be engaged in the development of their community. And although, again, we're not necessarily the organization that's going to tell you how to do that, we can be the space that you gather to say, look, here is our culture around us. Mm -hmm. We're going to organize ourselves to do whatever it is they feel that they need to do to sustain their livelihoods. And then third, we are working very closely with Aldersgate, who is, you know, technically our landlord, but they're doing a lot of development work there as well. 
and we are actively engaged with them about, okay, so wait, what are you building? Yeah, what, what's going on? <laughs> How is this going to impact mm-hmm. us? What should we be aware of? Mm-hmm. And and they are being, from what we've been told and what I'm understanding, they are very conscious of trying to not lose the cultural flavor and the cultural Absolutely. sense while they're building homes or business mm-hmm. areas. So I think Aldersgate is really a uh, an unheralded champion of the east side in the sense of how many Absolutely. how much land they own and they have been they have proven I to mean, it's so much land they yes so <laughs> much. and they've proven to be not only talk when it comes to that any developers will come to city council and say and Aldersgate isn't necessarily when term developers but as landowners yeah. you know anyone's going to come to city council and say oh yeah we, we promise to look after that um but they they, they yeah. take that job very seriously absolutely they are very community focused mm-hmm. and while they do have their own goals, and thankfully we're a part of those goals, mm-hmm. uh, they are very conscious of what it would look like if they just washed everyone away. Right. And how much the community contributes to what they do. Right. So. Um, so I was about to wrap it up, but there's one more question because we haven't even really touched on Salome School, which is one oh. of my things that I've been covering <laughs> since the, the get-go. And we're now... We've reached three different CEOs that have overseen this this fundraising project, and shortly after you were hired, or I don't know, three, a couple months after, you guys reached your one million dollar goal, right? Surpassed. Surpassed. Um, uh, yeah. So congratulations on that. So, I mean, this is a huge thing. Give us a quick elevator pitch on what this project is, in case folks, I've, I'll link it into our page, into our web uh, page with this podcast, but. Just for folks who don't know, just what is the Salom School? And now that you've reached the $1 million, surpassed the $1 million goal, where do we go from here? Absolutely. The Salom School is a Rosenwald-era school that was built here in Charlotte and finished in 1924. So it's nearly 100 years old. And it represents a time where schools were segregated. So African-Americans, if they wanted to advance their lives for their children, they really had to self-advocate and and self-fundraise and uh, self-advance their communities in order for their children and their children's children to have better lives. And so this one-room schoolhouse is a physical manifestation of one neighborhood in Charlotte that said, well, thank you for these architectural plans, Mr. Rosenwald and Mr. Booker T. Washington, but uh, we we have the money, we're going to build it ourselves, and we're going to educate our children. It is one of fewer than a dozen that are still standing, and what, in, the, in the country, or in state Charlotte. in Charlotte. In okay. Charlotte, so North Carolina at the height of this program had more Rosenwald schools than any other state, mm-hmm. and Mecklenburg County had more than any other North Carolina county. We had twenty-four; twelve were standing. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them have been repurposed or expanded upon, so they oh, aren't right. really recognizable. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, this is one of the few that are still yeah. schoolhouse-shaped and prepared. And you guys and are coming in just in time, because if you visited it over on John Adams Drive, it's it's looking rough. Well, and let's not visit it. Right. No, no, no. no. <laughs> let's, let's not th- visit it, yeah. friends. But, yes, we're going to relocate it to our campus. Mm-hmm. This will be the fifth historic building that we care for. And renovate and and, uh, reestablish it to what it would have looked like in 1924. Mm -hmm. And it will be an exhibit space and uh, a representation of how we're moving away from only telling the story of the Alexander Rock House, which is 
important, mm-hmm. but not the only story. And it brings us up into the 20th century and the story of Charlotte's history. And it really is going to be the foundation for African-American history programming with the museum and the things that we do. Uh, we are looking at, fingers crossed, mm-hmm. a move between April and June. Uh, there are a whole lot of factors that yeah, uh, right. play into that, but that's the time frame we're looking at. So it'll either be Easter or Juneteenth mm-hmm. at this point. Uh, it'll take about 18 months to fully renovate and mm-hmm. get it safe for people to enter. But then once it is, we'll have a huge celebration. Uh, I'd love to have the Johnson C. Smith Band there mm-hmm. to sort of have a homecoming experience. We'll also, when the school is initially moved, we're hoping to have sort of a sunrise, dawn of a new era, not just for the physical structure of the school, but for us as a museum. Because mm-hmm. it is, again, a commitment to the changes that we're doing internally and culturally as an organization. So it's the preservation of a schoolhouse. Mm-hmm. And it's important because it represents, again, moving away from the the trauma porn of history museums make people feel sad right? into wow, this is a triumphant story. This Mm -hmm. is a community that for 100 plus years now has wanted the best for itself. Mm -hmm. And this physical building is proof of that. 100%. And being able to stand in there. And just to be clear, I have stood in there, but when I say visit it, I just mean if you've ever driven by it. Don't Uh, don't go walking up to it. Please don't go inside, friends. There's a a lot of work (laughs) to be done. Um, But it is. It's just a a positive feeling. And to be able to renovate that and then use it as a... I've heard you... I've read you... I've read you in interviews speak about uh, making museums living things, not just pictures on the wall. And I think that goes a huge way towards it. To stand in that building Mm -hmm. for an exhibit or an event would be huge. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. Well, is there anything else that we haven't touched on you think is important to mention? Upcoming events or... Oh, man, there's always something yeah. fun. So, I mean, there. I, I spoke very briefly about the opera exhibit, mm-hmm. but we have a lot more mm-hmm. in the works. One that is even going to come before the opera exhibit, and I can't speak on it, but what I will say is please follow what we're doing because mm-hmm. the second I have liberty to speak publicly about what we're working on, mm-hmm. it'll be all over everywhere. Right, absolutely. And uh, if there and is something... I always try to help with that when I can. Everyone... Oh. Thank you. Subscribe to my newsletter, or our newsletter, Queen City Nerve, and I'm always pushing the uh, the new events you have, if if not writing about them. Thank you. So Thursday. Thursday, gotcha. Uh, it'll be free from 5 to 9 for 18 and up. It'll mm-hmm. be date night at the museum. We have uh, some local-owned wineries doing wine tastings okay. and doing education things there. Uh, we have our crisscross Mango Sauce Partnership, which mm-hmm. is our first bilingual program for children. That'll be happening next Saturday. The 17th. Mm-hmm. And uh, on January 7th is our 12th night celebration, which is a huge campus-wide event. And we will do more Spirits of the Season tastings for my 21 and up year old friends. So lots of stuff happening. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you coming in here and sharing your vision with us. And uh, I'm really you. excited to see how everything plays out. But I'm, I'm pretty confident in just the direction you've been going and, and the museum you. in general. So... I really appreciate you coming in and and chatting with us. Absolutely. Anytime. All right. Thanks, Terry. Thank you. And we'll see you guys next time. Cheers. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com.